especially timely given that we are now one month away from the opening of the Venice Biennale, which opens on the 10th of May, uh, curated by Christine Marcel, who is Chief Curator at the Pompidou Centre, and will also um, include Tracy Moffat as Australia's representative in the Australian Pavilion, designed by Denton Crocker Marshall. I'd like to acknowledge and extend our respect to the Boonwurrung, sovereign owners and custodians of the land upon which we meet, along with the Wurundjeri and other Kulin nations, and I extend our respect to elders past and present and to all First Nations people who join us this evening. The Cities of Architecture series explores the architectural, urban and cultural histories of some of the world's most interesting and inspiring architectural metropolises, with this year's series taking us to Venice this evening and to Houston, Madrid, Shanghai, Barcelona, Isfahan and Guadalajara. It's supported by our presenting partner Abercrombie & Kent, a luxury travel company offering unique adventures and vacations around the world. And also by the Melbourne Gin Company and Starwood Whiskey, who devise a complimentary cocktail created for each city over the course of this series. And this evening, a fresh and floral um, uh, cocktail or spritz for, um, for Venice. It's a great pleasure to welcome um, our Venice guide for this evening, Stuart Harrison. Stuart is an architect, lecturer, writer and broadcaster. He's director of the award-winning architectural practice Harrison and White. And he's written on design, architecture and urbanism, and he's an expert on existing building and adaptive reuse projects. Stuart co-founded and was co-host of The Architects, the award-winning radio show which ran on Melbourne Radio 3RRR for a decade, from 2004 to 2014, and also on ABC Radio National. He's written three books, including New Suburban for Thames and Hudson, which re-examined the suburban ideal in Australia and New Zealand housing. Stuart's also written for The Design Files, Architecture Australia, Architectural Review, Asia Pacific, and Lonely Planet, among many other contexts. And he's twice been a participant at the Venice Biennale of Architecture, and so we are very, much, very delighted he could join us this evening. So without further ado, please welcome Stuart Harrison. Thank you, uh, Max, and um, thanks to the uh, gin people. That really was very refreshing. I hope you're enjoying yours as much as I just enjoyed mine, um, and I promise you I'm not, I'm not drunk. Um, so yes, Venice is this kind of enigma in urbanism uh, and in tourism. It's this incredible place that almost uh, sort of bewilders people, thanks Eric, bewilders people into its beauty. But what is the city beyond the beauty and why is it beautiful? Easy questions. But obviously the Biennale is central to this conversation as well. Um, the Biennale I'm assuming a reasonably informed crowd here. Um, everyone's familiar with the Biennale, and probably through the art, uh, and to some extent probably the architecture Biennales, which I'll talk a bit about both tonight, as well as Venice as a city generally, and try through a relatively personal journey to try and describe why I find it so enigmatic and so important, as others have before. So I'm gonna start, and Eric, does this have a laser pointer? That's okay. Um, I'm going to start by talking a little bit about this wider idea of Venice. So um, for those of you who've been to Venice, or those of you who have um, seen images of Venice, which is everybody in the world, you'll be familiar with this bit, which is the main island, the former archipelago that was merged together to form a water-based, very close-knit, reasonably dense, actually very dense city at one point. 
What's interesting, if you look at Venice, which of course has been around for a thousand years, if you look at Venice, um, and of course was an incredibly powerful, important city at its height, but if you look at Venice today, you zoom out a bit, you can see the 20th century catching up with Venice, and now what is a wider metropolitan city of Venice, which supports, in effect, this small piece of, this small piece of Venice that's really the, you know, the bit that's well known. So, and the airport up there are the 20th century bits. And I'll talk a little bit in a while about why I had to go out to Mestre, which is one of the supporting bits. So all of this wider city makes this happen, as well as the productive hinterland. But if you look at the airport, San Marco, look at the length of the runway, it's approximately the same length of uh, the island of Venice, old Venice. So we have two very different dimensions of, of urbanism. And those of you who've been to Venice will know there's multiple ways to get from the airport. And the best way is to get a ferry directly across from the airport to the island. But what I'm going to talk about a bit tonight more so is uh, the main island of Venice and in some detail about a couple of particular parts, which some of which are incredibly well known to the wider world and some of which are very well known to the sort of cultural industry that's centred around the Biennale. So we see over there on the left, we see San Marco, uh, and we see a very large urban space, which I'll talk a little bit about, which, you know, kind of is maybe the best urban space in the world, um, and also one of the largest. So you've got this quite small city with a very large square in it. And then some other very large buildings these ones around here, which are around a film, the Arsenale, the famous former Venetian shipbuilding yards where ships were produced at a rate of one, of da one a day, warships and, uh, and normal ships back in the height of uh, Venice over the 15th century. And then the Giardini, which is this area around here, which is one of those areas of Venice which you don't really know, associate Venice with, which is gardens and trees. Some parts of Venice can have trees, some parts can't. Some parts of Venice sit on natural ground. Some parts are built up, reclaimed, and sit above the water. It's an engineering project as much as anything else, Venice. It is, to a large extent, a constructed landscape, built on fragments of the original archipelago. My introduction to Venice was in the early 80s when I watched the James Bond classic, Moonraker, a film that ends up in space but starts in Venice, or near the start is in Venice. And I had in my memory this scene of Roger Moore getting off um, a boat uh, and walking into a public space, and I couldn't remember what public space that was, and so I was re-watching the film. And it is indeed San Marco. So we can see the Campanelli here, we see the old library here. What we can't see here is the Doge's Palace and the Basilica, and San Marco wraps around this big L-shaped plaza. And we can see a glistening Roger Moore over there. I think for many of us, Venice is presented in, through these media terms initially, and then you get to go there. And I've been there four times. Um, but when you're younger, you see Venice through this filtered world of film. When I was Googling for James Bond films, it became apparent that, in fact, there's two James Bond films that have been set or have had scenes in Venice, Moonraker in 1979 and the more recent Casino Royale with a more sincere... Uh, James Bond than the sort of slightly uh, more Camp Roger Moore. But looking at film stills from San Marco, it's a really interesting comparison 
sort of historical comparison about how that public space has changed and maybe how filmmaking has changed too. Slightly more money having a shot on a nice weather day. But we see here in, in late 70s Venice, we can see the series of buildings that find the classical buildings that uh, wrap around San Marco, which were always intended to be commercial buildings. You can see here they're far patchier. This is a pre-restoration world. What's happened in the last 30 years is significant monuments in Venice and many uh, history-rich cities have indeed been restored. So the Venice we see today is a far cleaner version, a brighter version. Is this form of Venice um, more interesting, more akin to the kind of um, picturesque, ruinous quality that Ruskin fell in love with in the mid-19th century? His famous book, Stones of Venice. And if you can look very closely, you can see uh, James Bond on a gondola hovercraft passing through San Marco. Some of you are remembering the hovercraft uh, gondola, a fantastic piece of uh, vehicle design. So my own timeline in relation to Venice in terms of actually going there is four visits. Uh, this addiction I have to Venice, um, initially going there in 2003 for the, for the uh, Biennale, which is Max said is about to commence again. That was a summer trip not long after the opening and then subsequently to that in the even years I've been to the Architecture Biennale three times in different capacities both as kind of a um, sort of journalist of sorts with the, with the radio show and as an exhibitor as well um, in, in recent ones. So these, uh, these four visits all had different flavours to me and some of the images I'm going to show tonight are taken from all of those different four visits. I managed to find all the images uh, back to 2003, some um, early digital photography. And I guess in summary, the Art Biennale 2003, 2008 was probably the most exhaustive visit I did and I photographed a lot with a decent camera. 2012 is when the radio show that Max mentioned um, with Simon Knott, Christine Phillips and Rory Hyde, there's us drinking on the, on the, on the banks of the canal. Um, that was really a project, it was kind of working in Venice. Um, and then, uh, though it doesn't look like we're working there, but that was kind of the closest I got to living and working in Venice. Um, this was kind of about exploring Venice. And I guess last year, 2016, was kind of about maybe reflecting on Venice and trying to work out why it is you know, so significant and, and also covering it for um, writing a little bit about it. And I did a little story on it for um, Radio National. So uh, in the reading list as part of the little handout, there's a, there's a few texts in there. Um, there's only three books that I, you know, sort of really reasonably familiar with on Venice. A lot of this is informed by my personal experience and things you hear and learn when you're travelling, that wonderful thing of travelling. is a sort of, you know, learning plus scenery plus eating and drinking. The three books that um, I'll mention are obviously The Stones of Venice by Ruskin, who kind of put this new sort of Western appreciation on, on Venice as it was in the 19th century and led to help lead to the revival of the Gothic in the 19th century and Gothic architecture is very central to Venice. Venice, it has its own particular brand of Gothic, Venetian Gothic. And then more recent uh, books, um, A Venice Fragile City, um, which I actually think Max might have recommended to me, um, which I've been reading relatively recently by Margaret Plant, Melbourne's own Margaret Plant, is a fantastic work of scholarship that really focuses on the last two centuries of Venice, 
and picks up from this point in 1797 when the Republic ends. It talks about the very interesting transition Venice has to become this modern um, this city caught within modernity. The other book I'm going to uh, mention, and I'll show some extracts from both of these two, is this little book here, um, Giulio Foscari's Elements of Venice. And this was part of the uh, Biennale in 2014. So Rem Koolhaas, the architect, was the overall curator, creative director for the Biennale, architecture Biennale in 2014. I didn't go that year, which is a shame, because it was a particularly good one. And there was a series of publishing projects that came out of that. Um, a friend of mine who did go, Sue Phillips, said, this little book is fantastic, and indeed it, it, it is. Uh, Julia Foscari is a Venetian woman who's about 30 years old, and this is a very comprehensive uh, spatial and architectural description of Venice in a sort of propositional way. Uh, it's a fantastic little guide, and it's, it's very um, transportable. Uh, Margaret Plant's book is not very transportable. It's a, it's a huge, huge book. This is a detail. Um, I am zooming in on the cover of the book here, because even the cover is, is fantastic. Um, we can see here it's a plan of the city of Venice, selective plan of important public projects drawn in architectural detail with things like laneways embossed into the, into the surface. And Venice is nothing else, is a city of alleyways and laneways, and this very one big public space. But we can see here San Marco, so um, we can see the classical perimeter buildings that surround San Marco, which have been rebuilt several times. We can see the Campanale here, the tower. We can see the Basilica, San Mark, um, obviously the main church, religious centre of Venice. And we can also see the Doge's Palace, which is also a perimeter building, which I'll talk about in a second, which is a fascinating, uh, and maybe the world's, fascinating building, maybe the world's first civic building. Also, and here, the Hotel Bower, which is a good place to go if you've got an excess of cash um, whilst you're in Venice. Um, this, it, this was also a big fold-out map, which is a bit hard to read here, but you can see we were just here. This fold-out map, and this was given away as part of the Biennale in 14, um, describes all these wonderful projects. And if nothing else, Venice is a mixture of the Gothic and the classical, like many cities, but in a very, in a very particular way. There's also, so I'm just talking about drawing Venice a little bit here. So the figure ground drawing is a traditional architectural method, um, often, sometimes referred to as the nolly plan, a slightly different technique. But for those of you not familiar, I imagine many of you are, a figure ground drawing is where built form is black and everything else is white. When, a city like, when you've got a city like Venice, it's a very kind of particular and unique graphic quality to it. And it tells you a lot about that intricate network of, of, of laneways, which do weave their way through the city, tracing to some extent the original gaps between the islands. But you can also see the very strong presence of San Marco here, and how big that space is. The bigger, other big one, this is a water body here. Water and public space are treated the same way. But you could read the Arsenale as another very large public space as well, also surrounded by big linear buildings. Here's a little zoom in on, on this area of the Arsenale, the shipbuilding yards, and, um, and San Marco. And for those of you who've been to Venice, this experience in Venice of walking through very thin streets, sometimes as little as you know, a metre wide, and then getting released into a variety of piazzas, 
and then sometimes you get released into San Marco. But it is a, it is a city of squares, piazzas and lanes, and I think that is part of its magic. Also, this obviously, this, this free-form nature, this, this um, organic quality to it, means it's always a kind of unexpected, like the cliches about getting lost in Venice is a, is a wonderful thing. Because isn't that that big, you never really get that lost. So these are some photos from um, a recent, the last year's visit for me, 2016. And here I'm focusing on um, the Doge's Palace, which, um, and the Campanale there. So that's similar to that James Bond shop. And then here's the Doge's Palace here and here. Now, I guess the reason, I'm sort of completely obsessed with this building, um, partly because it is a, a, a public building. It's probably, so the Doge, the administration in Venice historically was reasonably democratic, and this is a building of consolidated civic administration, and it sits next to, obviously, the Basilica. It's the better building, in my view. Um, it's a spectacular building, and it's the exemplar of Venetian Gothic. So, sort of quad foil tops to the columns, um, this evolution of the pointed arch Gothic is rampant, as is, as is the sort of concept of the loggia, the, these recessed spaces. It's an extraordinary building, uh, and if you, it's, it's worth a tour around it, which, you, which I've done a couple of times. We can see here sort of very early illustrations of this building's composition in relation to San Marco um, to the left and the basilica behind it. It's lower. It's, it's, it's more uh, unassuming than um, the Basilica. And I'm not going to talk about the Basilica that much because it's the thing that gets most attention. But it is this big civic courtyard facing out to the uh, lagoon here. This is the original wing and then eventually wrapping round to face into San Marco and then wrapping round the other side. It has inside it some wonderful um, spaces including the hall of the, the Great Council which is a 25 metre clear span space built um, a remarkably long period of time ago in around the 14th century, 15th, 14th century, um, 14th century. This is the side um, facing into, into San Marco. So James Bond gets off here, old library is here, and we see this series of highly repetitive uh, Venetian Gothic forms with these remarkably big windows. There's a series of big hall spaces up here, and there's some very complex operations in symmetry and asymmetry happening on these facades. Astute observers will notice on the other side, on the, on the south side, the N2 bay windows are slightly lower than the other ones. Um, these two here, some very subtle hints. Um, and some amazing details in the way in which this building turns the corner, example with the statue there, the famous line on this face that faces into. So stone used extensively, as, as Ruskin obviously observed. Inside, this is the um, chamber, uh, the council chamber. And this is not my photograph, but this is a space, um, 14th century space, that is 25 metres across. That is an extraordinary just structural um, feat, regardless of its absurd levels of high decoration. But I want to talk a bit about the Campanale. And here I draw heavily from Margaret Plant's book. The tower and the Campanale, and this series sets off a series of, or is a, continuous, a continuation of a series of debates in Venice about how to do things that are new. The, the Campanale collapsed in 1902 uh, and was photographed in its collapse. 
So what, what sits in Venice today, which I think a lot of people would probably assume is hundreds of years old, is a 100-year-old, slightly 100 year, over 100-year-old structure. And here is the Campanale after its, after its collapse in 1902. What this started was a very strong debate about how to, repli how to replace this. Should it be historically accurate and a replica? or should it be a new contemporary tower? A lot of things were changing in the turn of the century. Um, after some you know, debate, the um, Venetian government rebuilt it as it was, essentially. It was a replica. Now, today, we might regard that as problematic in terms of how we approach heritage, but now that it's 100 years later, it sort of feels fine. I really want to mention very briefly the Basilica um, just because of the incredible level of detail uh, and stonework and colour. So this is one of the portals, entry portals facing into San Marco. This incredibly rich use of stone. And the Basilica um, in San Marco actually got a lot, it got taller and more and more elaborate as time went on, partially to compete with the Doge's palace next door, the civic building. This is a photograph showing the famous flooding effect that you get in San Marco. It was rainy when I was there in 2008. That's that classical uh, perimeter colonnade that wraps all the way around San Marco and is used as a commercial enterprise all the way around. The great little Scarpa's little Olivetti store is, is in there. And that's actually how it was originally intended. Um, so I'm just reflecting back here very briefly on my first visit in 2003 and looking through photographs of what, I, what caught my eye at this period of time. And it was the sort of concept of the Venetian house, the, these, these little palazzos that are a very particular type to Venice, um, often featuring a central bay of, uh, of, of loggia using the classic um, Venetian Gothic columns, quadfoils, and these scatter themselves as reasonably cubic buildings around, uh, around Venice. And they were originally buildings of manufacturing, and then they became buildings of living and office space. In fact, their, their evolution of this type is, is well described in the Elements of Venice, Fuscari's book. But other things that I guess, you know, what else makes Venice so magical? It is these, these moments, little corner stores, little openings that give you views into San Marco, this very big thing that you see only partially until you get there. But this, this just to return briefly to this issue of the new, uh, in the 19th century, Venice had several bridges uh, built in a more contemporary manner, and these were demolished ultimately because they were not seen as being historicist enough. Um, Venice has only recently recovered from this idea about how to operate in, the, in, the mo in a modern period. So uh, Calatrava, the Spanish architect, uh, was commissioned in the noughties to design a new bridge. It went kind of, it went kind of hideously wrong because it had a whole lot of access issues like all the other Venetian bridges. Um, but it is an attempt to do a very contemporary structure across the canal. It's near the, it's near the train station. So some of the, like the Academia Bridge, these bridges were, were rebuilt in the late 19th century in a more sympathetic way. So that crisis of how you do stuff in Venice, how you work in such a you know, bewilderingly beautiful and historically rich context has played itself out. There are examples, there are 60s buildings in Venice, but as a whole, generally we see it as this museum piece, and that is kind of both a good and a bad thing.
Patricia Piccinini was the representative for Australia at the Biennale in 2003, uh, the fantastic Melbourne-based artist. And the Australian pavilion, Max mentioned before the, the new pavilion, before the uh, Denton Corkamasha pavilion, there was a pavilion designed by uh, Philip Cox, completed in 1988, and designed essentially as a kind of temporary structure, but not without its qualities. Um, and this, to this audience may be well aware of the debate around its um, replacement, demolition, procurement for a new architect, etc., which I won't go into in details because you tend to go around in circles on it. But when, when we were there in 2012, sort of fell in love with this building a little bit. But going back to these shots in 2003, obviously you've got Patricia's fantastic work, but it was this first sort of realisation that this building actually deals with maybe a sort of Australian condition of an outside, a sheltered out, outside space. When we came back in 2012 to do our radio project, we utilised this deck. Um, this was before the building was demolished, obviously. But in some ways, this building was actually quite good, although it was widely hated by both uh, the art world and, and the architecture world. One building that nobody disagrees, which is bad, and I'm now in the Giardini, so I'm now in, I'm now in the gardens, is the Nordic Pavilion by Sver Fenn, um, the Nordic architect. And this is kind of the lifeblood of, of, of the Giardini. The Giardini, for those of you who haven't been, is a combination of reasonably um, conservative interwar buildings, often classical in nature, and then some experimental post-war buildings, the Venezuelan Pavilion by Scarpa, um, by Carlo Scarpa, the Nordic Pavilion by Fenn. There's a few, there's a little Alto building, a Rigveld building. Um, so it's a really nice collection of experimental buildings. This one is perhaps the most radical because that, I guess that quality I was talking about with the Australian Pavilion, the old Australian Pavilion, this building completely exudes. It's a heavily naturally lit space. It's got a sort of clear fiberglass roof. And when it's open, which is all the time when you're there, it's seamless with the outside. It also integrates this wonderful tree, which actually um, has come down now into it. And there's several trees inside the building as well. So that's an incredibly amazing piece of um, architecture. So I'm going to run through a few of the, um, a few of the things that came out of these uh, architecture biennales. And for that, um, I was there for the Vernissage, um, which is obviously the opening preview. Um, which essentially is people getting drunk non-stop all day long um, at, at openings of national pavilions. It's a bit like the big day out crossed with, you know, an art exhibition. You're looking at handouts, working out where to go. And this was particularly the case in 2008 um, when um, I, was covering it, so I was covering it a little bit for the radio show back in Melbourne, but essentially there to sort of absorb this. And this is probably not the case in the art world and for the art biennale, but in the architecture world, the Venice Biennale is the biggest exhibition in the world. It is the capital of architecture for that period of time. It is the way in which you see what is happening in the world of architecture. The art one is probably, probably quite a lot better because artists are better at doing art than architects. And a lot of the stuff in, act, in the architecture biennales does sometimes feel like installation art done by architects. And it's always dealing with the crisis of how you exhibit architecture, one that never quite gets resolved. Exhibiting art doesn't seem to have this same problem. But 2008, and I'll talk about it, the Australian Pavilion, and you can see it here, 
Um, this was a team um, led by um, Kirsten Thompson and others, uh, Comrade Heyman from Melbourne and Wendy Llewellyn and um, I forget the name of the other Sydney uh, curators, Vince Frost was the graphic designer. And this was kind of 2008, this was when the money was flowing around. Um, GFC was kind of hitting, but Australia was um, still you know, rampantly, if not embarrassingly, successful. Uh, and as were the other countries. So there was a real sense of kind of excess back in the late noughties. Australia Pavilion was sort of themed on this idea of abundance and pluralism, which was really great. It had this bright kind of uranium uh, yellow colouring to it. Um, and it also had a fantastic bag that was um, the hit of the exhibition, a hit of Biennale. Everyone was wearing the Australian bag, which is actually, you know, one of those things that sort of takes off. And the Creative directors saw to change the colour of the pavilion and make it this glowing yellow uranium structure. Inside, it was a very pluralistic exhibition. There were 300 architects submitted models. You know, everyone had a model in there, um, so it was a great excuse for lots of people to go because you had a little model in the exhibition. And there were two, for those who've been, there were two sections to the old Australian pavilion, an upper level. You came in and some stairs going down into this other room. In the first room, there was this amazing slideshow um, curated by Comrade Heyman, uh, former lecturer of mine, I suspect reasonably well known to this audience. And this was like just being inside a Comrade Heyman slide projector um, and was a fantastic, um, rich description of the pluralism of Australian architecture. So it was a historical grounding and then this sort of very abundant take on what Australian architecture might be, what are Australian architects doing. It was a very successful exhibition. Also in 2008, discovered the Peggy Guggenheim Museum, this um, classical building of which the only the base was built, um, and then famously purchased by Peggy Guggenheim as her Venetian home, uh, and then ultimately becoming the um, site for many a party in its, in its wonderful courtyard in the middle. And the Australians used to have their opening, opening party here, and obviously it fronts onto the fronts onto the canal. Um, also some reflections from 2008. This is that uh, wonderful uh, undercroft under the Doge's Palace and some other little architectural highlights I'm running through that was discovered in 2008. In the Giardini, uh, this series of pavilions, one exemplar is uh, the late English architect James Sterling's wonderful bookshop, which is this fantastic piece of rounded modernism, zinc and timber beautifully sitting with curved glass, a building that you sort of just gravitate towards, a bit like the Nordic Pavilion. But 2008, in terms of the curated show at the Arsenale, structured very much like the Art Biennale, was a series of very digitally rich, um, kind of a excessive uh, installations, really talking to both changing technology and to some degree wealth. More recent uh, biennales have been far more political in nature. So in 2008, there was still an interest in complex formalism, for example, an interest now almost entirely uh, removed from only margins of the profession, this, this installation by UN Studio. This is in the wonderful exhibition spaces of the Arsenale, the former shipbuilding factory. Architects' view is these are great spaces to exhibit um, from, an art, from an art point of view. It would be interesting to hear but these wonderful brick columns and these reasonably big span spaces and very tall spaces seem almost perfect for this kind of function of displaying big, big things. 
Frank Gehry's um, installation, which uh, stays with me. Um, so Gehry, obviously the incredibly well-known uh, Canadian-American architect, who in this, in, this, in this installation was building a piece during the exhibition. So it was an ongoing piece. It wasn't a finished piece. So this was being rendered. And it was really an exhibition of how you render combine traditional craftsmanship's ideas of rendering and plastering with digital technologies. And the point was that it was being built during the period of the exhibition, not exhibited. And that was something we sort of attempted to do when we went there and exhibited with the radio show. Also, Venice at night is a beautiful place as well. And you discover things, these are little pieces of Carlo Scarpa that you sort of think that you've dreamed the night after, the morning afterwards, but then you've taken a photograph of them. So Scarpa, the famous Italian architect, worked quite a lot in Venice. But of all the people who could work in this context, Scarpa seemed to be able to do it. So his work seems to sit seamlessly into that historic Venetian framework. He worked in stone and concrete extensively. So things like this doorway here, um, this is Scarpa working at an almost sublime level. So that question of how you put something new in Venice, I think Scarpa, the Italian architect Carlo Scarpa had that answer. Also at night time you discover wonderful things and these are, I must stress, these are wandering around the streets of Venice late at night quite drunk, um, hoping, that, um, hoping that you discover something interesting. This is the fish market in Venice which is this wonderful undercroft space that entirely clears out at night, becomes this undercroft. So this is a working city. Um, a fish market in Australia would, would you know, wouldn't, couldn't be this simple. Um, the famous uh, Austrian pavilion here as well, um, wonderful uh, turn of the century successionist. I just, I just forgot the name of the architect. But let's turn to um, 2012 and another architecture biennale. And this is the one that um, the radio show project was invited to attend. And I guess this was an interesting moment both for the Australian Pavilion, because uh, it's quite a risky exhibition, um, to some extent worked and to some extent didn't, but also interesting moment for our little radio show on 3RRR. So here's us, um, the radio show team, and the wider group. It was qu still quite a big group, and the exhibition um, was called Formations, New Practices in Australian Architecture, and really did look at an expanded view of what architects do. Again, dealt with the question of how do you exhibit architects, and it really said, well, architects do kind of often do some pretty interesting things outside of the normal you know, provision of buildings. So myself, Rory, Simon, Christine, we were asked to exhibit not as architects, but as architects who did a media project. Um, the overall exhibition was called Common Ground, um, directed by English architect David Chipperfield. It's a great signage strategy using those classic Venetian signs. And this is the opening. And the reason, the reason uh, we're so close to the opening here is because we're actually sitting on the pavilion uh, sitting on that deck doing our radio show. So I guess we had the question raised to us about how do you exhibit a radio show? Um, this is the question we're asking. And really the origins of what we did in Venice go back to, in fact, that room in there when in 2011 we did a broadcast from ACCA and we really started challenging the idea of what you need to do a radio show. We sort of dismantled the mobile radio studio completely and here we are broadcasting in a far more kind of relaxed atmosphere on uh, Nathan Crowley, Cowley, Cowley, thank you, Max, uh, platform um, space. And this was a fantastic little event for us um, 
because it really sort of opened up what we want to do. And this was at the same time we were being asked to, do you want to come to Venice and exhibit your radio show? And so after not a lot of thinking, we worked out the best way to exhibit a radio show is to do a radio show. So we thought, well, let's, let's do an, an outside broadcast, a site broadcast in Venice. That doesn't sound very hard. Um, and so we basically built, designed and built and shipped over there a mobile radio station um, and then broadcast both back uh, live back to Melbourne on our normal Tuesday night slot, which worked out well, timeline-wise. And then we also exhibited on FM, sorry, not a broadcast, on FM in Venice illegally um, for the period of the Venissage. This was at a time, obviously, when um, people were, didn't tend to have radios on them. Um, we'll get to that in a second. But this is us here. So this is our version of that um, platform turned into a mobile radio platform. This seat device, this trolley that we designed that we could sit on, we could have guests on it, we have guests around it. And we had all the tech reduced down to a very minimal amount. We learned how to use the tech ourselves because there wasn't you know, enough money to fly techs out there. So we built this stuff, we got on top of the equipment. And you can see just to the uh, left of that little laptop there, sort of in the workings of the trolley, the radio trolley, was a car battery. We weren't able to ship a car battery to Venice because um, apparently they can't do that. Um, so got there a few days beforehand and I um, elected to go and purchase a car battery. How hard can it be? Well, in Venice, a city with no cars, <laughs> buying a car battery can actually be quite, quite difficult. So I spent a good day going around the several small hardware stores in Venice trying to buy a car battery and being mostly laughed at. And then I spoke to the, um, the, the technical assistant at the Australian Pavilion, uh, Diego, and I said, where do I get a car battery? And he goes, you've got to go to Mestre. And I said, well, what's Mestre? And he goes, I think it is like your Canberra. Um, and Mestre actually wasn't like our Canberra at all. Mestre was like the Australian city. Um, it was that bit across on the mainland. So I had to go across there on buses, purchase a car battery, come back, and then we could power our device because we wanted a fully mobile, of course, a fully mobile radio station um, that had an aerial. We're assembling the aerial there. It could transmit. It could can transmit back to Melbourne. And here, and so the problem of, you know, receiving this transmission, not everyone's walking around with radios these days in 21st century, so we managed to fund and give away a thousand small um, FM radios, which we branded, um, and we gave these to people who came to, the, came to our section of the exhibition with, with the idea they might take them home, back to where they come from, and listen to their local community radio stations. So we broadcast during the day for this um, three or four days of the Vernissage, and then we did an event, and then it was all, and then we packaged up a lot of the material for subsequent episodes, and most of it is still, still online. Um, so here it is here playing out. This is us moving the trolley around. We can see it here in front of the um, James Sterling bookshop, so we were able to wheel it around the, around the garden. And the trolley was inspired by the Venetian goods trolley. For those of you who've been in Venice, you see people on these trolleys that you use to get up and down all the steps of the bridges to move goods around. So we sort of had the punt that, you know, that was a sort of local type, because Venice has all interest, very interesting ways to collect rubbish, deliver goods, deliver the mail, that have had to deal with this, you know, city, which in some ways is kind of a crazy idea for a city. 
So now I'm going to, I'm now going to talk a little bit about the most recent uh, architecture BNR, which I did go to. Uh, I went back again four years later to uh, 2016, which was um, curated by Aravana, the um, South American architect, um, and the theme was reporting from the front. And the Australian pavilion at this, at this last year's was called The Pool, uh, and directed by um, uh, three young architects out of Sydney, which is a fantastic sort of shaking up of the normal kind of players in this space. Aravena uh, is an architect we interviewed on the show years ago, and there's the Pritzker Prize winner for last year, is, represents a kind of emerging rebalancing or recalibration of global architecture uh, being someone from the third developing world, it also chose to exhibit a lot of people from the developing world. And that upset the balance in terms of these very traditional national pavilions that tended to be owned by countries such as Australia, France, Germany, Canada, etc. So certainly in the Arsenale there were a lot more, a lot more exhibitors from other countries you hadn't seen before. And generally a kind of re-questioning. I thought it was a kind of trying to turn the world upside down idea. And, and as I was sort of suggesting before, in this period, say, between 2008 and 2016, this eight-year period, the focus of the, of the world's architects from a, from a sort of curatorial point of view shifted from something really about excess and the digital to something really around the political and dealing with crises that you might find in the news, refugee crises, movements of people around Europe, economic, um, economic issues with developing countries, uh, housing affordability. Into this mix, the Australians come, uh, and even though the exhibition was um, an interesting little show, so this is the Giardini here in Ariel, this is the new Australian pavilion here. Um, I'll just digress, there was, there's a kind of cultural cul-de-sac that exists at the end of the main, one of the main vistas here, and you've got France, uh, the United Kingdom, and Germany in this kind of you know, European cul-de-sac at the end, and Australia kind of sits a little bit behind, uh, where the toilets and the rubbish used to be. <laughs> but in fact, it actually has a frontage directly onto the canal. Um, it's a service canal, but it's still, it's still a Venetian canal. Uh, and the building, to some extent, deals with this, with this unique orientation, whereas the, the Philip Cox one maybe didn't deal with that um, sighting as, as well. The, um, the Fen Pavilion is here. It's impossible to see from an aerial photograph, which sort of indicates what it's about. Here is that service canal. And this is the Australian pavilion, which is a black cube, so a white pavilion, open pavilion, with allusions to maybe kind of a rural shed from Philip Cox, was replaced by a very European, very mute, resonant object pavilion designed by Daniel Corker Marshall, clad in black, uh, what was supposed to be Australian stone, but was changed to Zimbabwean stone. Uh, and you can see it there on the, on the canal. This, uh, this is the opening of last year's. And you can see, and basically each year I've been, more and more Australians go to the Biennale. Um, and it is really the best way to bump into people you know is to go to the Venice Biennale, it would seem. Um, it's become incredibly well attended by Australian architects, particularly, obviously, it's a cost, a business cost. Um, but many Australian architects go to it, like hundreds. Um, and one of the nicest moments of the opening of the pool um, was this sitting out the back here and a bit, of, a bit of reversing that the curators did, which I thought was really clever, to make this service space here the kind of place to have a drink underneath the, the cube and sort of next to the canal and just, you know, drinking away. And the, and the booze at the Australian exhibition was by far the best. Um, 
and lasted for the longest period of time. So the pool um, exhibition was really focused around the, the issue of what the pool represents in Australia, which obviously is important culturally. Um, and at its best, it was that celebration of the municipal pool and this public space. At its worst, it was a celebration of almost remarkable wealth and indulgence that Australians have um, and seemed slightly at odds with the rest of the Biennale. This happens every time. And because the Australian Pavilion is consistently commissioned prior to the announcement of the overall theme and overall director. So Australia will never win the Golden Lion for Best Pavilion because it never actually works within the theme. And sometimes these glare against each other very strongly, almost always. And that was particularly, particularly noticed last year. So the, whilst the rest of the world was dealing with refugee crises, Australia was celebrating wealth. Um, the Nordic Pavilion, an ongoing obsession, this was this year's, uh, and again, a very event-based, public forum-based exhibition here that this building really lends itself to. You can see the remarkable uh, fins. Uh, the pavilion that did win Best Pavilion uh, this year, the Golden Lion, same process as the Outvian, was the Spanish Pavilion. You can see here everyone's going to cram into the opening, which is both a, you know, excitement about seeing a pavilion and also trying to get to the bar. Um, this was inside the Spanish pavilion, and you can see lots of steel studs here. A lot of, there were a lot of steel studs generally. The Spanish really nailed this theme. Um, you get a bit of a sense of the kind of work they were focusing on. This is not the architecture of 2008. Um, this is the French pavilion, which is looking at housing. And the German pavilion, which was looking at migration of refugees landing in Germany. This exhibition called The Arrival City, which was really fantastic and they put some big structural openings in the pavilion to make it more like the pavilion we just demolished. This one here, and I forget which country it is, it's embarrassing, but it was to do with safety on building sites. Again, political. Um, the Arsenale from the air. And the big curated exhibition in the, in the Arsenale where the creative director, this, you know, Aravena, in this case, really gets to um, put their thesis across about what architecture is about was probably summarised best in the first room that you come into. So in 2008, this was this very digitally space with moving animations based on people and computers and stuff. In 2016, Aravena recycles from the previous year's Art Biennale all the plasterboard that was put up, which was acres of it, and all the wall studs that were built up, hangs them from the ceiling to make this beautiful ceiling that's all the way through the space. And this is plasterboard turned onto its side where it's got this nice raggedy edge, it creates this sort. So that, that wall is uh, 1,200 millimetres deep, um, and it creates this amazing surface. So out of the generic, out of the recycled, it's also a bit of a comment on the desire for artists to display things on white walls. So acres of plasterboard and built and then ripped down, and then here, fantastically recycled and reused. This really captured a shifted agenda in global architecture. Also exhibited was the process of making the work and how how the exhibition was formulated. The exhibition generally has a combination of things. These range from new systems in construction, a new concrete system here, which, which is innovative, um, to this project here, which I think is, it was on that first image, which one best project, which is the Makoko um, Floating School, uh, which is a project out of Africa that's moved itself around the world and won best project. So there's two big prizes, best golden lion for best pavilion and best, best project. This was um, Norman Foster's ago at a, um, at a drone port, a sort of 
a very beautiful solution to a problem that doesn't exist. Um, but then this, this fantastic piece around these enormous Indian ephemeral megacities, temporary occupation, um, episodic growth, housing, mass movement of people. This uh, exhibition looking at um, Hong Kong and its housing affordability issues. And then as we get very close to the end, we've got a few discoveries I made last year, which was uh, really focused around um, couple of little elements. Carlo Scarpa, as I mentioned before, right outside the Giardini, the entrance to Giardini, and I've been there four times, I only noticed this year um, this fantastic uh, installation, this statue that's in the water um, by um, Nura and Scarpa created this wonderful edge setting for it and the water washes up, up, again, up against it. Again, it's Scarpa working in Venice. And the fact that I've never noticed that maybe that's just I wasn't being attentive, but also how well he's able to work in this, in this fabric. Um, how am I going for time? I've got about two minutes left, Max. So a couple of other things. The New Zealand pavilion. Uh, so New Zealand doesn't have a national pavilion. So for countries that don't have a national pavilion, they can exhibit either in the Arsenale if they're invited or they can exhibit inside the city. So the Biennale does in fact extend around to the rest of the city. The Kiwis had this beautiful um, opening ceremony, which they often do. Um, uh, traditional uh, greeting, Maori greeting, and then an exhibition upstairs, this exhibition called Future Islands, and actually a really beautiful series of New Zealand projects all exhibited at their relative height above sea level. So how do you exhibit architecture in a kind of traditional way, you know, models of buildings? Uh, it doesn't get kind of more beautiful, beautiful than this. Um, but yes, this was another, this was another year of, uh, you know, discovering fantastic bars in the handout. Uh, this bar here is mentioned, Vino Vero. This was my favourite watering hole at the time. Um, and just one of those places that just really makes a, makes a visit to the city magical. And, you know, it's a cliche, but this is a, this is a beautiful setting. As is the Grand Canal, obviously. And another discovery last year, the, the Golden Pavilion, which actually has uh, gold in its stone cladding and reflects the, reflects the golden light, particularly the afternoon light. This is where I'm going to finish now with this one last story around the slightly wider version of Venice. So this little map from my phone here, you can see the main island. And up to the um, northeast is Burano, uh, a little town. You go past Murano, the glass, and you keep going about an hour on the Vaporetto, Burano. And some architect's friend of mine said, we've got to go out there for lunch. We went there last time. It's amazing. It's this place called Venisa Restaurant. Um, and it is, and this is, a, this is a bit of that. So this is the view from the restaurant. It's this like, sort of idyllic rural and urban landscape at Campanale. Um, and so here we're, we're sitting just in that little, there looking out over this, uh, over this field. And as we're sitting there having what is a incredibly expensive, privileged um, time, looking across in the other direction and seeing this project, and I'm going to what was a series of quite well-known uh, uh, Australian architects. What is that thing over there? That looks pretty interesting. And it became apparent it's actually quite a well-known housing project by Giancarlo Di Carlo from uh, the 80s. And it's just sitting there out on this island in Venice. It's a public housing project, it's a social housing project. And in a time where we're trying to work out how to do housing well, out on this Venetian island, this is fantastic, incredibly well-handled little project learning from Venetian streets and laneways. So it was, an, it was one of those 
you know, you thought you were just going out for a privileged lunch, but actually you end up doing some architectural discovery out there. Thank you. And I think I've still got time for questions. Eliza is going to walk around with the microphone. And I'm going to try and remember all the things I failed to say. Does anyone have any questions? Max Delaney has a question. A traditional host asks first question. Stuart, um, thanks so much for the fantastic um, overview. And just thinking about the new Venice and the old Venice and how they operate, I saw a lecture once with Rem Callhouse gave it. He, I think he mentioned that there are 8 million visitors per day, or it might have been 2 million visitors per day into Venice. Yeah. And now I think only 80,000 people that live there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That gets worse all the time. And, I mean, is it a city that you can still... You, you've referred to it before as a working city. Is it still a city you can live in and work in? Yeah, less and less so. I mean, it's a working city. There are still things there. There's still people there. But the working really is supporting the tourism. Tourism is Venice's number one industry. And all of us who go there, whether it's for highbrow stuff like the Viennale or lowbrow stuff like we're on a cruise ship and we want to go see some Murano glass in San Marco, we're all going there, basically tourism. So it is the, it is the primary, overwhelmingly dom dominant industry. Venetians who live in Venice uh, declines over time, always, and the amount of tourists increases over time. And that's just the reality of it. I think with Venice, because that is such a profound, profound uh, version of that experience that a lot of cities have, um, it's almost like that is completely redefined what the city is about. If the city used to be a beacon of democracy um, and trade and, and, and architecture and finance, particularly finance, it's now a city of what a city is in a post, you know, in a post kind of, uh, not just post-industrial, but kind of post-urban world. Like, what does the city become? It's, it's a risky question, and I don't think anyone's necessarily worked out how that's a good thing, but you can still have a, what feels like a genuine experience in Venice, and certainly when I was sort of living there for um, almost a couple of weeks in 2012, there's still a sense of the local, but that is decreasing over time. Should we be sad about it? I don't know, because at least it's still there and it's still operating. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that's the answer to the, answer to the question, Max, but it's, it's certainly the, the nature of Venice today is, is somewhere between a, a large tourist theme park and a museum, and a big, you know, cultural incubator, essentially. Yep. I have a question at the back. Uh, thank you for your presentation. It was very interesting. Um, you mentioned a couple of times uh, that the San Marco Square, in your view, was one of the best in the world. Yeah, yes. um, I'm interested in um, what your reflections on that might be and what is it that makes it the best square in the world, and what are some of the lessons for us back here in good old Melbourne, and um, how does something like our world-famous square, the Federation Square, compare to that? Federation Square is a, a very good public space as well, and I think Federation Square learns a lot from Italian public spaces. I often think about the Piazza in Siena when I'm in, when I'm in um, Federation Square. There's a few key things there that it does, containment, uh, Federation Square uses level change very well. San Marco is very flat, but it works incredibly well. I think the important thing to re remember about San Marco is it's that 
it's that perimeter of public buildings, and I can't pronounce the Italian name for it. It's that perimeter of, I'm um, sorry, commercial buildings that was essentially designed to be that way and over time got a bit wider um, that really defined San Marco so very clearly. Like San Marco used to have water in it, it was filled in. It is the result of a design. So San Marco is a designed space. It's a very deliberate attempt to frame and make significant its major building, which is the Basilica, and then over time more and more with the Doge's Palace. So it frames some significant public buildings. It provides, so this is Urban Design 101, it provides activation all the way around the edges. People, yes, it costs six euros to have a coffee, but there's people there activating, there's things happening above, and it's got a good sort of proportion to it. Even though it's incredibly long, it's not too wide. You can always get a sense of enclosure. So I think they're some of the reasons. And it's got that tower in it. And I think those shots of the tower demolished re reveal how lost that space suddenly looks. The tower really does anchor the whole thing. So there's a few elements there that I think are key to good public spaces. Um, but it is the result of a kind of design, like it's not an accidental space. Some of the other spaces in Venice, the smaller piazzas are more gaps between things and they're less designed, but this is a very highly designed space. And it's actually an overwhelmingly classical space, despite it being, for me, you know, the Doge's Palace is this great Gothic beacon and civic beacon. The main part of San Marco, the Basilica, it's a classical building, um, as is all that stuff surrounding it, the perimeter. So it's actually a very classical space, very ordered uh, space, and it can contain lots of activity. I don't know if that answers the question, but Federation Square, I think, is a really good public space because it also just uses simple techniques of defining a space. So Federation Square is also kind of an L shape, as is San Marco. So you could, you could, you can see there, you know, there's an openness that connects to the wider city, and then there's some definition. So there's a sort of, I think there's a, there's a secret there. But if you overlay San Marco on some of the great public spaces of the world, it's, it's very significant. You know, with the exception of Tiananmen Square or something, it's, it is a very large public space by global standards. And it was very large, it's been very large for a very long time. Yep. Thank you. Thanks, Stuart. Um, I'm interested in hearing uh, about the initial part of your presentation where you talked about the extension of Venice or the, the real Venice. I mean, it seems like um, the, the old or the heart of, of Venice is very connected, whether it be laneways and bridges and views and vistas. How is it connecting to Mestre and the airport, how are those interstitial spaces becoming connected? Well, the only connection to the mainland is, is, the, um, is the railway line and the road bridge um, that was very controversial when it was built in the late 19th century. And I think Margaret Plant talks about this quite a lot, that that was a link that was argued as to whether that was a good idea at all. Obviously, Venice's success militarily was its, was its separation uh, when it was a city-state. City so it became attached to the land, um, and that obviously made um, connections a lot easier, road and rail, and also brought a bit of industrial onto the top end of the island near the bus station and, and a bit of car movement. But its connection to the airport is, is, is far more tenuous. Um, you know, it's a very complex land thing, or it's a reasonably pleasant, um, uh, you know, boat, boat ride. So, but it is all this periphery that supports this, supports this one thing. If, if Venice had had to deal, if Venice wasn't um, an island separate, 
all that stuff would have had to have been contained within it. I mean, Manhattan's another good example. If a city is contained, it tends to become pretty good, you know, for, for, for reasons of densification, of layering and reworking spaces. You can't just keep going. So I don't know if that answers your question, but its links to the rest of Venice are, are um, tenuous. Um, but you know, in relation to what Max was just saying before, most people in Venice who work in Venice would live on the mainland. You know, there's very few people who live in Venice. Most people who live in Venice are basically long, well, increasingly long-stay tourists who go there and decide to live there for, you know, a while because it's it's beautiful. And why wouldn't you? So, you know, and that's where it gets a bit uneasy because it feels like it is this kind of industrial city and then this theme park with this link between the two. What you can do about that, I, I don't know. I mean, no one would propose. I mean, I think you've got to learn from Venice. Like, how do you learn from Venice in terms of making cities better? When I was doing a, a design studio a few years ago and trying to explain to some students why Venice was good, and Venice is completely mad. Like, like it doesn't obey a lot of rules around infrastructure, logistics, connections, but that's kind of, that is what makes it good. So, you know, it's that madness that lies at the heart of the magic of it, I think. Any further questions? Um, I was interested in your reflections on Carlo Scarpa and the effect that he might have had on Venice through that, not building the new entirely, but adapting the old with the new. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't show a lot of Scarpa, because Scarpa's deliberately hard to see like it um it is this sort of magical thing there are a few pavilions in the giardina that scarpa designed outright at least two maybe three the venezuelan and another one i forget now so there are some standalone buildings where you can see scarpa at work on a separate building but it's that ability to work within existing fabric i mean the casa vecchio in verona for example is probably scarpa's sort of most well-known project and that it plays out there as well so how do you work in an existing context, particularly one that's almost debilitatingly historic and beautiful? How do you intervene? Um, and it is by intervention. It isn't by obviously starting again. It isn't necessarily by clearly separating old and new, which is kind of what we culturally regard as the appropriate response. You know, it is actually going, well, I'm going to get my hands dirty, but I'm going to do it so subtly and so intelligently and with so much detail and craft that it doesn't seem alien to it. Um, and if, if, if more people operated in that way, you might have a very different operate, uh, attitude to preservation. So there are some new projects in Venice, for example. I didn't mention today Ando's work at the gallery on the peninsula there, um, where Japanese architect uh, Tao Ando has inserted his concrete architectural language inside an existing building. And when you're in there, it's very much a Tao Ando space, concrete, beautiful. But from the outside, it is still as it was. This idea of as it was is still critically, critically important. Um, and in fact, just remembered my last slide was in fact this as is was question. Like when you, when I was in there in 2008, I was staying on the Lido and you'd get the Vaporetto back across to the main island and you'd look at this view from a distance and you'd go, what year am I seeing here? Um, Am I seeing this as it was in 1450, in 1360, in 1800? 
And a lot of contemporary uh, critics would argue that Venice has, has mutated quite a lot, Foscari does. But as part of the excitement is this sort of time travel idea that you might be seeing something as if you just landed from the future. And that's a very, even for someone who's a you know, contemporary architect who likes new things, um, it's a very uh, seductive idea that what you might be looking at. So, you know, outside of the scaffolding here, is this the same view as it was 200 years ago? It's actually very similar. Um, is it the same view uh, a thousand years ago? No, very, very, very different. So it's that kind of quality of Venice that um, really challenges these ideas about what, where authenticity lies. Because I enjoy as much as anyone else this campanale, but I, it's only 100 years old. Yeah. So that was my last slide. I forgot I had one more. Sorry. Maybe a good way to end as well. Um, please join me in thanking um, Stuart once more.